to a very special podcast, podcast, podcast that usually goes through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, has monthly bonus Song of Ice and Fire and Dream Dream episodes and pop culture episodes coming soon your way, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to a very, very, very special episode titled The Official Guide to the Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones, in which we welcome back returning guest, friend of humanity, and now published author Kim Renfro to talk about her brand new book, The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones. Hi, Kim. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back. Our pleasure. How are you? This must be a whirlwind time for you. Oh, I am all sorts of feelings under the sun. (laughs) I'm... Very excited and happy, but also very tired and, you know, it's it's been a week, but a great one. Sounds about right. Well, we'll get into everything surrounding your book. It's so exciting. Uh, to everyone listening, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month. If you subscribe for only $5 a month or more, our intent in doing these special Patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter-by-chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly. So here we'll talk theories, do character discussion, or in this case, do an interview with unique and interesting people like Kim. Yes, indeed. And this one will be going out to everyone on who's subscribed to us on our regular podcast feed, as well as to our patrons a little bit early. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all episodes, to include Patreon and the Song of Ice and Fire episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Ignavos, histories, interviews, wins, winners, sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So we thought we'd start off with the, the easiest possible question in the world. Tell us, Kim, what is your book all about? Uh, you know, this little show not watched by very many people. <laughs> very niche called industry. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, yeah, I decided to write a book about Game of Thrones. Uh, and the way that I decided to tackle it was basically just exploring every aspect of the show from the very beginning of how George R. R. Martin first wrote the books and then met up with HBO's folks all the way to the series finale and sort of like how that went which was a challenging uh, chapter to tackle but yeah so so my book is sort of um a compendium of all sorts of behind the scenes facts and my own personal analyses and aggregating the best tidbits of interviews that are sprinkled all around the internet from the last decade and putting it all in one place so that people can hopefully read about the show that they love and hopefully glean a little more information. And then it'll, you know, my, my dream is that someone like reads this book and then rewatches the whole show and they get to be like, Oh, that's that thing that like, you know, there's like a behind the scenes story for that scene or like this was explained further by the books or all that jazz. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a great book. And I think the one thing I really loved about your book, having read an advanced copy, of course, several weeks ago, (laughs) is that, is that, um, how you kind of infuse like your own personality and story into the story behind Game of Thrones was, I think, was a really cool, not just narrative device, but also just a, it makes your book unique among a lot of books because it could be dry as dust. Like here's when the contract was inked in this year and then this a few months later was announced via Variety and, and by George R. R. Martin's blog. And it could be like just kind of a little bit, eh, you know, it's kind of stuff that I write sometimes once in a while on, on this kind of meta side. But it's instead, it's it's very much infused with your personality. I think it's an amazing uh, testament to you, of course. And of course, congratulations for the book. And uh, we're very excited to be talking to you about this today. Thank you. That means a lot. 
Yeah, Jeff's right. I really enjoyed how you were able to combine a bunch of different perspectives. I liked how you used the, the Red Wedding as a kind of this launching pad to talk about a bunch mm-hmm. of different topics. That what a different experience that was for both book and show fans, but also that it caused book and show fans to interact in a certain way as, as book fans anticipated people who hadn't read the books learning about it and how it was the, the standard for which the show winners were reaching, but also after that, a standard they had to keep trying to live up to for better or for worse. And I really think looking back on the show, that's really just so much the the organizing principle of everything that worked and then didn't work about Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, that full credit to my editor, Matthew Benjamin at at Simon Mm -hmm. & Schuster, because he he was the one I had like I had started with like the pitch. And then he was like, I think that you need to kind of like give us a framework for why, like, why is someone reading a book about Game of Thrones right now? And it's like, really, you can just say that it's like the Red Wedding was what I think changed everything about how uh, how Game of Thrones was going to impact pol- like pop culture moving forward. So yeah, I had a lot of fun kind of like revisiting that, even though I wasn't I wasn't reporting on the show at the time when the Red Wedding aired, and so it's kind of unique to me also because I was still watching as a fan at the time when that came out, and I spoiled it for myself. I <laughs> was a devastating part of the book for sure. That's just like a. Like Roose Bolton stabbing a dagger in the heart when you read that. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was rough, rough times. So I think so. When you when you came back on for our episode on John Eight from Game of Thrones, you talked up a little bit about, about your own personal fan story. I was wondering if you could talk about that one more time for all the new listeners who have gone on. Uh, you and your cat can talk about it a little bit more with your other <laughs> listeners uh, about what your personal story was and about how you came into this project of actually writing this book. Yeah. So my my personal kind of Game of Thrones journey begins in 2011 when the show itself started I had heard you know a couple whisperings and from like a friend of a friend of a friend at a party that this HBO show was coming out and that I should totally watch it and I wasn't someone that like watched HBO I think I was vaguely aware that you know The Sopranos was a big deal but I didn't have money or the time <laughs> to watch like premiere television I was like rewatching Grey's Anatomy on Netflix uh, after like my college classes um, but I was a huge fantasy fan I loved Lord of the Rings I loved Harry Potter um, all of the sort of like big staple genres and so I went and watched the pilot when it aired. I uh, torrented it because, again, I had no money to same, be same, same. paying for things like television. Uh, and I just, like, that first episode got me so hooked. And I had zero patience. I had to go and read every single book. Um, so I went and bought all of the available published books, devoured them. And then, yeah, I this was about at the same time that I had a Reddit account for the first time. I was like just Hmm. starting to get into Reddit. And so I was like, oh, of course, there's probably a subreddit for these books that I love so much. (laughs) So I became like a 24-7 lurker on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, which is hilarious. I don't know if you guys have seen on Twitter today that a bunch of the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit mods (laughs) are like kind of like Poking at, poking fun at Kate Reading, who did the audiobook version of my book, because I guess I didn't tell her how to pronounce that because I don't say it out loud very often. But we we had discussed at like Con of Thrones and stuff that it's Aswaf. Mm-hmm. That's only proper. <laughs> which, which uh, yeah, she. So I guess she just keeps saying R slash A S I O I A F. Anyways, tangent. But it's it's funny that like really. The subreddit and like all of like the fan theories, like I hadn't picked up on R plus L equals J. Um, 
I figured that out by reading a Reddit post about it. Um, and I just, I was so into all of those sort of like pieces of analyses and predictions and all that stuff. So I continued my obsession with Game of Thrones and by default, A Song of Ice and Fire. I got a job, I got a temp job as an office assistant at a media company called Business Insider in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like the 97th person hired there or something like that. That became full time. So I was sort of responsible for like setting up computers and keeping sodas in the fridge and like <laughs> all of the sort of like day to day menial tasks around the office. But because of that, I got to know basically every single person in the company. And one of those was an editor whose name was Gus. And we were talking in the kitchen one day, like while I was literally putting like beers in the fridge for a happy hour or something uh about the latest episode of game of thrones and i started like spouting off like oh well they cut this from books and like i didn't really like this thing and like well there's this theory that like this is actually going to happen and i think that that's probably true and after a while he was like why do you know so much about this show and i was like i don't know i've read all these books i spend all my time reading theories and stuff about it uh so he just he let me know that i was welcome to write an article for the site if i ever felt like it uh so i like spent my weekend drafting up a google doc of like i think it was an article about why george is probably gonna need an eighth book to finish the series (laughs) which is so depressing that in 2015 i was like oh no this is uh this is bleak so yeah i started writing for the site Um, And that eventually turned into a full-time job where I transferred within the company. uh, And now I write for our like sister site to Business Insider, which is just called Insider. And I do all sorts of entertainment coverage for them. But Game of Thrones has always been sort of like my baby from the start. And now I wrote a whole dang book. (laughs) That's so great. So I was wondering, as as you went through the publication process, as we're looking ahead as the the forthcoming projects set in the world of Ice and Fire, what odds of success do you give those? And is there any kind of insight you feel you've gleaned from doing this book in terms of what those projects will need to succeed? Or do you think they're just kind of like their own different animals? It's hard to predict how well they will do. Right now, my my most optimistic guess is that this will be kind of like a Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul situation, Hmm. where like... Breaking Bad was this like huge, enormous peak TV kind of drama that everyone was obsessed with. And then Better Call Saul is the prequel that not nearly as many people watch. And it's not really something that's like winning Emmys every year and talked about in the news every time that a new season comes out. But it's very, like, very well received by critics. And the people who do watch it, like, love it, sometimes to the point where they say that it's better than game of thrones or (laughs) better than breaking bad and maybe game of thrones i don't know your mileage may vary but so i kind of can imagine a similar scenario playing out with these prequels where i think that this massive tens of millions of people fandom is going to kind of condense down into a smaller set of people that still are very active in watching and love these prequel shows if they come out um but i don't think that it will have the same like you know, every year for two months, we're talking about nothing but this TV show type of impact. Well, I think look, one of the things that's that's interesting, I think you bring up a great comparison between Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, but the other fear is that it could be fear of The Walking Dead versus the original Walking Dead as well, which is not as well received by critics and is not watched by nearly as many people who watch The Walking Dead, which kind of sucks as a show right now anyways. But re- regardless, I, it's, it's interesting now that they seem to be bringing two projects on kind of simultaneously with one kind of leading the way, but with a potential Targaryen slash dragon show coming up. 
too that they're 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 utilized they're having both these vehicles progress forward which i think is a little odd I, but i mean i i understand they're trying to capitalize on the zeitgeist but i think that kind of takes us to takes me to a different question which is what are the what about other folks' attempts to capitalize on the game of thrones zeitgeist like the new hits the new hits like the new his dark material series that's airing on hbo or the watchman series as well yeah i mean both of those are on my radar and i'm probably going to be covering them for the site and i'm i'm very curious to see how well those do i think i mean it's inevitable that people are going to try and replicate the success of game of thrones what i always kind of roll my eyes out roll my eyes at is if if someone's like this is the next game of thrones and i'm like well first of all you can't say that because no one knew that game of thrones was the next big show when it was first coming out you know people didn't have that kind of instant faith in it and hype around the show until really like the end of the first season um and I, I think that people, I think any sort of like executive or pitch person who's trying to recreate the next Game of Thrones in a fantasy world is probably missing the point. Because I think why Game of Thrones was such a success is because we hadn't seen that this exact genre in TV really at this scale. And so I don't think that you can just like we're going to have to find some other genre. That's part of why Watchmen is intriguing to me because it's like this superhero genre that we've seen a lot in movies lately, obviously. And there are like the CW shows and, you know, comic book stuff has been around for ages, but I think Watchmen has potential to be a new spin on it, which is exactly what Game of Thrones was for Lord of the Rings. So yes, everyone's going to capitalize on this, the Game of Thrones zeitgeist, but that's what HBO was doing with, Lord of the Rings, they were capitalizing on the hyper on the Lord of the Rings movies that happened in the early 2000s. And so it's just kind of part of the cycle. Um, but I am not a, I'm not someone who would like place a hundred percent bet on any one show to be the next thing. I think that we're going to be surprised by it whenever it comes around. The show was a lightning in a bottle and it stood at the crossroads of several different trends at once. And I think that has relevance for the, how well the properties are going to, going to be going forward. Because, yeah, the comparison to, like, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, Better Call Saul especially not watched by a huge amount of people, but beloved fiercely by some fans and a lot of critics. So it's kind of the, the model of the, the prestige TV that is, has come about as conventional wisdom over the last 20 years or so. But Game of Thrones is also, especially now, something like the MCU or Star Wars, hmm. where it's a massively seen genre fiction property, which is something a little different from prestige TV, but we're seeing kind of an overlap here. And so that's those two very different models for the series going forward. Is this going to be an interlocking, you know, cinematic slash TV universe, or is it, are we going for quality niche spinoffs that will be beloved fiercely by 25% of the original audience? And either one of those is valid. Um, part, part of me is wondering if they might you know, try to split down the middle and that could be the downfall of a brand. If they, they they shoot for the moon with an audience, they can't necessarily pull back, but in the process don't make something that stand on its own. I mean, yeah, obviously a, a, a ton of it's speculation, but that was something that was interesting about Game of Thrones and something you were getting at throughout your book, which I really liked, which is that, is this the end of an era or the beginning of an era? Does Game of, is Game of Thrones the last of an old model or the beginning of a new one? You can make that argument in a bunch of different directions. I get kind of bummed out when I... Because I do believe that I this is that Game of Thrones is the last show that will have the like appointment viewing weekly impact that it did. I it's going to be very very hard for another show to get tens of millions of people to sit down at the exact same time 
once a week and then talk about that show for the next six days until the next episode comes out. You know, I, I cover a lot of other shows that have a sort of like built in hype, like stranger things. I remember the summer that the first season of stranger things came out. It was like, people could not stop talking about stranger things for like Mm -hmm. two months, maybe even longer. It was like almost from like summer all the way through the holidays stranger things fever was like everywhere and now the third season came out and i think like the like online and like in real life discussion around it lasted for maybe two weeks if Mm. that and like it's just it's kind of bizarre to me but also feels inevitable that like there is just so much television now and so many different ways in which to watch it and the whole dropping a season at a time model just completely messes with like the cultural conversation around your show. It might help you get a bunch of people to sit and watch 10 hours of your story at once, which I guess is cool. But then what you're losing is that momentum of like word of mouth viewers, like picking up on it halfway through the season or whatnot. So yeah, it's, it's weird. I kind of do think that we're at the end of an era with Game of Thrones and it will be interesting to see how the prequels fit in to this next phase of TV. It's kind of bittersweet because, I mean, I remember when I was in college, you know, because I'm a little bit older, I think, but I was, I went and we all watched Lost together back in like 2005 together. We all sit around in my shitty, you know, living room in my my college room apartment and watch Lost or 24, these shows that that Emmett probably did not like because he probably didn't like 24, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) But we we had a lot of fun doing, watching numerous different shows. And I do feel like that Game of Thrones was kind of the last show and might be the last show now because I mean, when you have the advent of, you know, House of Cards, when you have the advent of Stranger Things, when you have other really good TV shows that are now streaming that you can watch not just on Netflix, but on Amazon Prime, on Hulu, on all these various streaming services, Disney Plus with the Mandalorian series coming out. It's going to be a little bit of a different experience. And you do kind of feel a little bit bittersweet about losing that sense of community and watching something in a, in a communal setting. Yeah. My, you know, fond, naive hope is that people recreate it by actually watching the shows physically with people. Like, you know, you can get together with anyone to watch The Mandalorian whenever you want, as long as you agree to. But, you know, that 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 might not that might be withering on the vine as well. And yeah, it, it reminds me of watching like Battlestar Galactica when that was first airing. Mm. You know, that, that feels like the last big genre fiction show that had standalone episodes that you didn't necessarily have to have been watching the show the whole time to understand because that seems mm-hmm. that seems kind of dead now in most big shows yeah. that there's no way you could drop yourself into the middle of game of thrones season six and really have any idea what was going on and that's fine but yeah that's definitely a, in part a product of or maybe a driving factor of the 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 way viewing models have changed and that you're not you know anticipating next week on star trek next generation you know this this same standalone thing that you're familiar with and yeah, it's, it's it's hard to even build a show built around mysteries the way so many of the Game of Thrones prequels <laughs> would be in that model. Because, of course, a lot of the driving narrative idea behind those shows, putting aside the obvious financial incentive, is to reveal things about the universe we haven't learned about before. But, you know, we saw with Westworld what happens when you build a show entirely around that and people are smart enough to start guessing. Just The layers of the onion fall away and you turn out to have no dramatic core. So yeah. I, I worry about that with future with these future shows. And yeah, I can't I can't help but feel very bittersweet reading reading your book and feeling almost nostalgic for that older appointment viewing model. Do you kind of feel that way? Yeah. I mean, I'm nostalgic for it, I guess, in a personal sense. In a professional <laughs> sense, I'm very selfishly like, oh man, like I can't write about TV like this mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. Like if I get I just get kind of sad 
that like again to use like the stranger things model like I would watch one episode at a time like with my screeners or whatever and there would be individual things in the episode that I would have loved to like break out and do like a little analysis on or like details you missed in like each episode but I just can't I can't write like that for our website because I I can't assume that people are stopping the episode and then like picking up their phones to read an article about it. Hmm. People people usually just finish the entire show and then they want to read about it. So I have to write about seasons of television as a whole instead of individual episodes. And I feel like you lose the opportunity to kind of like mine just mind details from like the smaller moments or just like really talk about like a particular scene that happens earlier on in the season. It just kind of gets lost in the noise. And so, and then I don't get as many views on my articles because I can't, <laughs> I can't write as many. So yeah, I'm, I'm nostalgic for the traffic that Game of Thrones brought to my uh, author page once a week. That was, those were good times. Um, so yeah, but also Emmett, to your point, you, you asked, earlier like what do i hope the prequels uh learn like learn what to do or what not to do from game of thrones i really hope especially with the final season that people in those writers rooms realize that like a big battle and dragons and like action do not make a series great like that's not that's not it's it makes it awesome sure and it can lead to like really great character moments but i think what a lot of people realized in those last six episodes was that it didn't matter how many great epic battle sequences we had it was like a knight of the seven kingdoms with its like nothing but two-hander quiet character moments was the best thing that we saw come out of that final season and that only that was only as beautiful as it was because we had so much good character development with all of those folks over eight years and so i hope that people realize that people didn't just like game of thrones for like the tits and dragons as ian mcshane would say but because like these were very incredibly well-written characters and so i'm curious to see how they managed to do that without such outlined uh structure that george was able to give with the first four first five a song of ice and fire books um yeah that's that's what i'm looking at yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really interesting point. I think like a lot of that spectacle, as people have talked about, did was brilliant to watch. But at the same time, it kind of left me feeling a little bit empty, as you know, Emma and I talked about it during our episodes during the season itself. Uh, but earlier seasons, like the spectacle, like a Blackwater, Blackwater is a very spectacular episode and it's, remains probably my one or not number one or number two favorite episodes. And that kind of takes me to a question uh, about the relationship between George R. Martin and, and David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Uh, one of the most interesting parts about your book that I personally found because I'm into this kind of meta shit is how the series of books came into being and was adapted onto screen and the long process it took to lead up to the first failed pilot and then the actual successful pilot, which was filmed in 2010, 20, 2009, 2010, released in 2011. But thereafter, at least a lot of fans got the sense that George and David and Dan had kind of a frosty relationship, maybe coming from when George declined a writing spot for season five, maybe kind of also went a little bit downhill after the show passed the books. So I'm curious, what is the actual ground truth or ground speculation of the relationship between the author of the series of books that we love so much and the showrunners who we, we, we love, we love them enough, I think. (laughs) Um, I mean, I like full disclosure from the start, I have never interviewed either George R. R. Martin or David Benioff in D.B. Weiss. I would love to someday. If you're listening, fellas, (laughs) 
give me a ring. I wrote a whole book about your show. Uh, but so like based on actual facts that we know is like they always have nothing but nice things to say about one another. But you're right that like this very clear, like you could just watch it from afar, uh, clear divide kind of started to happen um, around season five. And George always said in his like blog posts and stuff that he stepped back from the show because he really wanted to focus on writing the winds of winter and getting that finished, which I believe I take him at his word that that's, that was the case. Um, I think that, and I also, this is speculation on my behalf, but just again, based on like his blog posts and the way that he talks about the show, I don't think that he's been watching the episodes of game of Thrones live, Mm. like, with the rest of the world. I'm pretty sure that he stopped watching the show. And all of that comes down to him feeling like he had to separate what was happening in Game of Thrones from what he was trying to do in his books. Um, He said before, you know, he's a gardening style writer. He doesn't like doing outlines. And unfortunately, what happened was as soon as Benioff and Weiss caught up to him, he got forced into sitting down with them and having a meeting and giving them an outline, which is exactly the thing that he said that he doesn't like to do. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that impacted his writing process a little bit, maybe. Like maybe as soon as he knew that he had given up some of those like little story tidbits that he was working towards in the future, that might have impacted his like motivation and his creative drive to actually flesh that out on his own. I see no reason why Benioff and Weiss would be like upset with George R. R. Martin and vice versa. Um, you know, millions of people wouldn't know about George's books if it weren't for Benioff and Weiss. And Benioff and Weiss wouldn't be making, you know, a hundred million dollars each from a Netflix deal right now if it wasn't for George R. R. Martin's <laughs> books. Um, but I do, you know, it's just a messy, it's a messy situation. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are messy feelings on either end in the same way that there are for fans. Um, so yeah, it's, it's complicated is my, <laughs> is my best speculum, but I don't think that there's like anger there, you know, if anything, I just, it, it seems to me like George wishes more than anything that he had gotten those books done. And Benioff and Weiss probably wish the same because they signed up at the end of the day. If you're, if you're someone who's really upset with the way that Benioff and Weiss chose to wrap up the show in the last couple of seasons, what I kind of always say is like, look, these are two guys who signed up thinking that they were adapting very lengthy, nuanced, complicated, beautifully written books into a TV show. They did not sign up to write their own original take on this like sprawling, massive fantasy universe. So I'm like, they did their job for the first four years and then they suddenly had to do a job that they weren't fully prepared to do for the last four. So it's it's messy. It's a very unique situation and I try always to look at it through that lens in terms of determining the level of frostiness in that relationship. Like even assuming they all come at it with the best possible intentions, that that situation, the books being unfinished, just hurts both of them. It hurts George because now he has this conflicting canon that he doesn't want to let get into his head, and that fans saw the ending of his work and the ending of specific characters before he got to it in the books. Like, if I had come up with anything remotely resembling the Hodor twist, I would be crushed that I didn't get to reveal it to the audience mm. first, especially since he apparently had it in his head from sure. the start. And yeah, you make a great point that D&D did not sign up for this job of completing this story and putting that out there. That was never something they wanted to do. So... 
yeah, the feeling I get from both sides there isn't mutual anger. It's like mutual exhaustion and just kind of awkwardness. I imagine I would have to imagine at this point that this is that this is the situation they both put themselves in. And again, even with the best of intentions, there's no easy way. Yeah, out of that. and to that point, like the thing that the thing that kind of piqued my curiosity the most was the when Entertainment Weekly put out that report that they had offered George a cameo in the final season. And he was like, no, I'm too Mm -hmm. busy, like, working on the winds of winter. And that was the one thing where I was like, dude, you can, like, they will fly (laughs) you first class in, like, you know, three days or whatever to, like, appear in the background of one scene. Like, that, that was the thing where I was like, okay, do you just, like, really not, I felt like he really like put up a wall where he was like trying to keep himself removed from the show, like to protect his creative integrity and like what he was trying to do. Um, Not because he was like, screw those guys. But I I did find that interesting where I was like, if you if you had nothing but warm feelings about this show, of course you would have done a cameo in the final season. Like, why not? I got to imagine he's also trying to put up a wall between him and the reactions to the show. Sure. Like, <laughs> regardless of where you come down on the on season eight, just I would I would not be optimistic looking at that as an author trying to wrestle the winds of winter onto the page. So I, I could understand him not just not wanting to touch that at all. Yeah. And by not watching the show anymore, which again is what I'm pretty sure he's doing, it gives him kind of like an out where he's like, oh, I can't talk about specifics. I don't like I didn't watch the thing. And I and, and we know <laughs> that he didn't read the scripts for the final mm-hmm. six episodes either. So I'm like, he kind of gets like, you know, he gets to plead the fifth now anytime that someone asks him about it. So, yeah, I don't blame him. I think that's a solid strategy. Yeah, agreed. And he has said, he, I think he said in 2013 that the performance of Natalia, Natalia, is it, there's a Natalie Tana, mm-hmm. Natalia Tana, uh, for who played, uh, who played Osha in the show, that it did influence his perspective on how he was going to portray Osha in The Winds of Winter. So there is that kind of like that data point there that might potentially point to George being like, yeah, I'm, already, I'm letting this like kind of minor character get filtered through. What's going to happen when I'm getting to like Tyrion and Daenerys and John and how they're portrayed on screen? Am I going to start looking at what I'm seeing on screen and what's and then writing that onto the pages of The Winds of Winter and eventually Dream Spring after that? Yeah, I was thinking about your, your great story about how you, you, you came up within Business Insider. And there's a lot of great stories that, that people have over the course of Game of Thrones. You look at Joanna Robinson. You look at a lot of other great people in, in the podcasting community. And it's, it's this little kind of cottage industry of content creators that's spring up around this show and that really does feel unique to me and I wonder what you felt like about the future of that I mean a bunch of people are trying to write books obviously Mm -hmm. you know not not all as successfully but what what do you think is the next step for for that whole crew I don't know we're all we're all on kind of shaky ground it it feels like in a way because Hmm. well speaking particularly from my corner of the industry like digital media is like a really volatile industry right now like i feel like every week i log on to twitter to see that like another small website has shut down like splinter today just got announced yeah i was just thinking of that closing so it feels a little untenuous i'm sort of like you know i'm very happy to be at a site that seems to only be increasing its audience and not decreasing it but i know that that's not the case for a lot of other people um so i feel like there's I feel like we're almost at like a bubble stage where like that might burst and we might condense into like a few larger media sites. I would love to be working for one of the ones that still exists in like five years. (laughs) Um, I think people are just going to have to start getting a little craftier 
maybe about what Hmm. types of content niches they're trying to carve out for themselves. I feel very lucky that I stumbled into writing about Game of Thrones, which then like happened to just be the most popular TV show in the world. Um, But there are ways, like I think what you guys are doing with like the chapter by chapter analysis, like I hadn't seen a podcast doing that before you know and you guys go long but that works very well for you because like people really like listening to literal hours of conversations (laughs) about (laughs) like every time that i see that an episode is like an hour and 45 minutes i'm like oh well i don't have time to listen to all of that but let me just start it and then i'm like doing the dishes three hours later and i'm like oh right of course i love this i think people are gonna either like get lost a bit in the fog or really have to figure out like a specific angle that works for them in trying to make it as a content creator because it's really competitive out there and I think it's only going to get worse before it maybe gets better depending on how our our entire internet system shifts in the next like <laughs> five to ten years so who knows well, I think you you bring a, a fair amount of analysis which makes you distinct a distinct voice in terms of like analyzing fan culture and I do think you, you brought up the point earlier about how People want to go through all the way through a series on Netflix or on Amazon Prime, and then they want to read about it. But I think there's that the niche that you fit in is, is really is done really well, and I think you it, it really shines in this book. So I was curious in terms of the book itself. I was curious, like, was is there a specific chapter or a portion of chapters that you found like the hardest or the most rewarding to write when you were writing this book? And how did you, I guess, tackle and overcome some of the issues you were having in, in kind of crafting this narrative? Oh, lordy. Um, I, the short answer is, I don't think, I don't know if I did. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I don't know if I overcame those things. I would hope so. It's, it's funny. I'm one of those writers and I think that it's very common. I absolutely hate reading my own writing. Like I read my book the bare minimum amount of times that I needed to, to like make sure there weren't any spelling errors and like correct my copy editors comments and stuff. The hardest one for me, I think, was that last set of chapters. I was having to put the finale of Game of Thrones into like cultural and historical context approximately, (laughs) I don't know, let me check my notes, eight days after the finale had aired. (laughs) And I was just like, it was very intimidating. And I, I had... I had a rough couple of days there where I was like, who the hell do I think I am to sit here and try and like say what this show means or like say what I feel about the final set of episodes when I, I, I felt like I didn't have perspective. I felt like I was way too close to it. I was exhausted after two months of covering the show for work and working on this book. Like I was sleep deprived. I was stressed out of my mind. That was really tough. And I, I I have not reread that chapter in a while. So I'm curious as to like how I will feel about it in a year. So that was really daunting. For me, the easiest stuff was like when I was in the very early stages of writing the book and kind of in my research phase. And it was fun for me to go back to like seasons one, two and three and even four at a time when I wasn't writing about the show professionally, I had just been watching it hmm. and like rewatching those episodes with like my current analytical mind, taking notes and reading interviews and stuff from back then that I had never read. Cause I wasn't someone who, especially in like 2011 and 2012, I wasn't, you know, reading every 
interview with the cast members after the episodes or like watching every HBO behind the scenes video. Uh, so I felt like I was discovering things that I hadn't necessarily known before about those earlier seasons. And that was really fun for me. And anytime that I stumbled upon something where I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I was like, okay, well, if I didn't know that, I would hope like that means that <laughs> other people maybe don't know that. So yeah. And then that being said, I now have no gauge for whether a fact that I know about Game of Thrones is something that someone else will know. <laughs> I'm like, I just, I just have no idea. I did, um, I did book trivia at my office this past Tuesday for like our like party that we threw. And I was like, oh, I'll just like go through my book and pick out fun facts that are found in my book. And people were like getting mad because they were so hard apparently. And I was like, oh no, I thought that was an easy one. Like you guys don't know who Danny's dragons are named after. Like I thought everybody knows that. So yeah, it's my brain still kind of feels like just general mush about Game of Thrones. And I hope that it reconstitutes itself soon because it'd be nice to have a fully functional <laughs> brain again. Wouldn't it, though? Yeah, I know what you mean about the, the multiple different levels of attention pay. That does seem like that might be an end of an era for that, too. For one property having an intense devoted core and then the gradations of knowledge about it as you go. That's something that's always been interesting in conversations about Game of Thrones. But yeah, what do you have, like, what, what's a piece of media you would use to reset? Is there something like a comfort, like comfort food movie or TV show that you might watch to try to resettle your, your brain oh, yeah. once you're past this whirlwind? Oh yeah. I mean, I, my like routine while the show is airing and I still kind of do this as like brain food uh so i would i was staying up just all night on sunday nights mm -hmm. after the episode aired i would like publish articles until like 6 a.m and then uh like take a nap for like an hour and a half uh and then wake up work some more and then around like four o'clock on mondays i would order a bunch of thai food and just watch old episodes <laughs> of great british bake-off and like Perfect. fall asleep on the couch at like 7 p.m. to like <laughs> the comforting music of Great British Bake Off in the background. Uh, so I still do that. I have found like I'm now, I gravitate towards like happy, feel good television hmm. these days. Like I have no appetite for like intense drama right now. I think that I need to purge all like backstabbing political everything out of my system. <laughs> That's been an interesting trend I've noticed of late. You have the kind of move in a more grim, dark direction in general with a lot of media. But then there has, I feel like there has been a backlash with like Great British Baking Show or like the new Queer Eye mm -hmm. or in a more, in a different direction, the, the adult popularity of shows like Steven Universe where that seems to be embraced more than ever because that's a counter aesthetic to it. A lot of, a lot of trends. Yeah. Or like The Good Place, which, uh, sure. the final season's mm -hmm. on right now. I'm like, how lovely to watch an entire, like, 22 minute comedy series that's literally just about how to be a nice person <laughs> like right that's lovely <laughs> i want more of that in my life so yeah so uh, question for you so taking all aside this great cultural trend of how everything is getting happier uh, let's talk about a sad time for DD, and that is their original pilot that they crafted for game of thrones season one uh there's one of my favorite parts like i said i'm into that meta shit so i really like kind of just ate up that chapter a lot so walk us through like what exactly happened with the failed pilot how much is different between what was in the original pilot and what actually translated onto season one, episode one? Yeah, so that original pilot is very fascinating to me. I'm very sad that I don't think we will ever 
see I'm like even like a deleted scene I don't know it it would be really cool if we saw some semblance of it but I don't think that we will but Benioff and Weiss set out to write a pilot of the show and I what we can see from the script which we have a copy of the original script that they submitted to HBO thanks to there's a Writers Guild Foundation here in Los Angeles that um Joanna Robinson friend of the pod well you guys know because you guys had her on for that (laughs) whole awesome bonus episode about those scripts that are in there. So the pilot, the original pilot is among all of these game of Thrones scripts that's on available for viewing there. And I think the first mistake that they made, which I think is a very relatable one is that they just tried to like crib George's chapters straight onto the page. Like they were like, Oh, we can just like copy paste this thing and that's the setting and copy paste these lines. And that's the dialogue and, you know, condense the prologue in with Bran's first chapter and et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to put a, like a TV audience in a frame of reference in the same way that you can with a book, especially the way that George does his point of view chapters. You get so much information just from whoever's point of view you're in and their thoughts, and you obviously can't get that across on a TV show. And so, yeah, that original pilot, the biggest problem that they wound up having with it was by the end of the episode, all the people that they were showing it to didn't understand why Bran was thrown out of that window because they didn't know that Jamie and Cersei were brother and sister. They didn't even understand that Cersei was the king's wife. They probably didn't even know their names, let's be honest. Um, and they, like, the entire geography was really unclear. And so, thankfully, HBO didn't say, like, well, your pilot sucked, see you later. Uh, they had already spent enough money on it that I think they decided to give it a go and they saw potential in there, which is great hats off to the the HBO executives for for taking that risk. So in the new version, they had to scrap almost every scene and the stuff that they did keep, it's kind of fun because you can tell. Like once you once you know what you're looking for, you can tell the stuff that is still there because like uh scenes with Ned Stark look a little bit different if they're from the original pilot because yep. Sean Bean has like extra greasy oily like unshowered (laughs) hair uh which i guess they were just trying to like really go for naturalism there um and they added in a lot of like spoon feeding of details to the audience so like now there's title cards for like winterfell and king's landing and that wasn't there in the original pilot but they knew that they needed to give it a bit of geography um and then other things like just like really basic exposition like Jamie leaning over to Cersei and being like, your husband, the king, or like when Jamie takes off his helmet in the Winterfell courtyard, they did like ADR, which is now I'm going to forget what that stands for. What is it? Additional dialogue recording? Something like that. Uh, they had Maisie Williams come in and just like record herself saying as Arya, like, that's Jamie Lannister, the queen's brother. And so it's like, okay, like now we're like establishing a little bit more that like they're related. And so, yeah, they really just had to do all of these little things, which I think you can then see how their entire adaptation process was then affected by those lessons that they learned in the pilot. They now understood that they were going to have to spoon feed people information a little bit more, which meant stuff like changes like, Littlefinger pushing Liza down the out of the moon door and saying like your sister instead of Cat because they were worried that people wouldn't understand that Cat was Catelyn Stark Liza's sister. Um, 
So yeah, it is, it's a, it's a cool little case study of not only how we almost didn't have this show that we all love so much, but also how Benioff and Weiss had to learn how to adapt George's writing in a way that wasn't literally just turning his pages into TV scripts. <laughs> And that makes sense for the genre, especially up front, because one of the things that puts a lot of people off about fantasy is the expository spoon-feeding right up front. How many fantasy stories start with, like, ten pages telling you who everyone's title is? Mm -hmm. Like, there's the um, Pradane Chronicles by Lord Alexander, which I really like. Those books are wonderful. But, like, the first book, your first time through can be a lot, because the first 15 pages are just naming people and, and locations and so I understand the, the wanting to flinch away from that because something you bring up in your book is their desire to avoid the what the, the creaky and kitty and corny aspects of fantasy and they were kind of worried about that reputation talking Game of Thrones. And I think it's interesting that that was something that they were worried about and that was valid but at, at the same time you see one of the big reactions to season 8 being that was too over the top violent and too committed to not being creaky and kitty and corny and I wondered <laughs> I wonder what you felt about that tension I wonder what... What is it we want exactly from shows like this? Do we do we really want them to, you know, to uh, get rid of more sentimental and sappy elements and hit us with with blood and murder, and or do we want them to <laughs> make us feel good at the end? What what is it we really wanted out of Game of Thrones in that regard? I think when Benioff and Weiss struck the balance, they did it very well, and like like to me, Game of Thrones completely peaks with seasons three and four. And that's, mm. I think that that's partially because you have actual romantic storylines happening, like John and Ygritte being together and just being happy for a while, I think is like a very special part of the show that towards the later seasons, I mean, Sam and Gilly were always still there, but like, unfortunately, they weren't quite as present in the last couple seasons to like be that sort of like offsetting of like happy <laughs> crying and not just like I'm sad crying all the time <laughs> and I think that that's why like Jamie knighting Brienne elicits hmm. such like strong emotions out of people because it is like such a pure and happy moment and there's part of me that that hopes that people don't think that Game of Thrones is successful just because of like sex and violence like it it hmm. had a heart to it that was really important like Benioff and Weiss dismissing like Harry Potter as like kitty whatever I'm like Harry Potter especially the later books like deals with real shit and it's all, those characters are developed very well and they're aged very well in a way that's very effective for both teenagers and adults to read and so I don't think that I don't think that wholesale dismissal of uh, like you said like creaky and kitty elements in storytelling is a fair place to start from but i also understand why they felt the need to like come out swinging and saying like we're not like all these other things we're doing something <laughs> new and like the i hope everyone goes and reads someday the letter that they wrote to hbo with like their pitch for the show yes like they are so like you can feel them being like so like high on their supply of like Oh, like we're gonna do it and people are gonna go crazy and like everyone's gonna lose their fucking minds and they're just like cursing and they're like this isn't this isn't your average fantasy story and it's true but it's also like okay guys i get it <laughs> like you're men it's not even an aesthetic distinction it's more of a marketing one yeah, right it's, mm -hmm. it's not that game of thrones is really that different when you break down the mechanics from something like star wars 
but it's it's not marketed quite the same way and that's uh, sometimes marketing can have a longer shelf life than the actual core of the thing yeah like you know like like watchmen which had just a huge influence when it came out as a comic in terms of grim dark tone but not really the kind of real tragic perfect structure of that story or something like the the dark knight the the movie of the dark knight which you know became just millions of why so serious posters in every dorm room across the land and not so much again the <laughs> clockwork structure of the thing and i wonder if that I, i'm just i'm curious as to what the, the the takeaway from game of thrones is in terms of its tone and yeah i think the the way it ended might have it might have a negative impact on that and I, i'm with you i hope people look back to those those middle seasons and scenes like eager dying and john burning her body as being really the the heart of the show Again, just to come back to like Jamie knighting Brienne, that was not something that I was expecting to happen necessarily in the final (laughs) episodes. And it just, it feels like such a gift to us. I'm like, how special Mm -hmm. that like we all have that to look back on and like that happened in those final set of episodes. I also think it's funny that I recorded my last podcast episode with you guys right after that episode <laughs> aired true. and we were just like all in our feelings about like how great this show is Don't know what you're talking about. and it's gonna go so well and like aren't they just nailing it and then it's like oh what a time capsule i know truly so final question for me i was curious um and when you're doing your research and you're doing your writing were there particular cast or crew members that you were particularly impressed with in their work on game of thrones in a way that might not be seen by the public or even be recognized unless you're like, hey, that's actually what's going on here. You had two great chapters about the music and the costuming in your book as well, in your book. And I was curious if there was other people that are kind of like would never get the limelight, but are actually did a fantastic job on the show and what specifically they do to make the show as amazing as it was. Definitely. I mean, Ramin Jawadi and Michelle Clapton are probably like my two favorite behind the scenes people creating stuff. I wish that I had even more pages in the book to like spend more time on all the production design like deborah hmm. deborah riley um it like she did a lot of all of like the set designs and all the work with like the pre-production crew just like again an incredible amount of effort went into to making those sets and making everything feel really real um and then just like to zoom out even more, the thing that I had a lot of fun with was when I spoke with a, a woman who works in Northern Ireland in like their screen tourism division. And just hearing from her, like Game of Thrones has like literally changed the economy of an entire country mm-hmm. and changed the lives of all of these people who wouldn't have known that they could have like a job in the film industry, but they're now like production assistants or like you know, running small errands on a set and like doing all these like smaller menial background jobs that, um, yeah, again, just like changed their lives. And I was really impressed by just how many hundreds of thousands of people uh, had to come together to make this show happen. And yeah, unfortunately, we don't we don't see all of their names in the credits every time. But it was like, you know, a lot of like blood, sweat and tears went into to making the show. Well, hopefully a lot of them can have a similar story to yours where just being there and getting your foot in the door enables them to meet the right people and, and get more and more work and, and do something as great as this book. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm very, I'm like, I fully realize that I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in and I'm I'm happy to do my part 
for the community at this part, <laughs> at this point. But uh, yeah, I don't take that for granted at all. So I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you. And we want to thank you for coming on to the Not A Cast podcast to come talk a little bit about your book. I'm sure, I'm absolutely positively sure you'll be back for a future chapter analysis because I know you're missing those, you know, those three hour recording sessions that we had between John 8. The, the days when I had an evening free are, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I hopefully have more of those in my future now. So definitely. So we'll, we'll have a link to your book in the, in the description box for the episode itself. But I was curious, where can we find your, your stuff on insider and on Twitter and stuff like that as well? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kim R Renfro and I'm on insider.com, uh, writing all sorts of random entertainment stuff to come. Like I said, his dark materials and, and Watchmen are on my on my list upcoming. So I'm excited about that. And yeah, you can find the book if you just look up like the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones. There's a Simon and Schuster landing page that will point you to all the right places. But honestly, call your local bookstore. We need bookstores in this country. I love bookstores. I don't want them to die. So call whoever sells books near you and ask them and they can order my book and get it to you. So yeah, I would deeply, deeply appreciate it. And then send me a picture of it with your pet because that has been making my entire week is seeing my book next to people's like cats and dogs and birds <laughs> it's very cute so keep that up i would love it so thanks everyone for listening thank you for kim for joining us as always you can find us on apple podcasts google play podbean soundcloud anywhere where everywhere you find your podcasts you can check out our patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f can follow us on Twitter at Nauticast ASOIAF or shoot us an email at Nauticast ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can follow me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can follow me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. So, again, thanks, Kim, for joining us. We'll be back next week with another Patreon episode, another chapter by chapter episode, or probably a Fever Dream episode at some point in there. And you can get all these again at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF for all five dollars above patrons. We want to thank Kim again for joining us, as I said about seven times now. And <laughs> I'm just it's gonna... a really great book, guys. Please buy the book. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. And you are very welcome. So thanks for listening. We will see you guys next time.